Growing up, one of my best friends ever, Scott Embry. I still think about him a lot. He's, uh, he wants to be a lawyer now, which is it's a little difficult for me. I digress. We met when we were teenagers in middle school. And while we're not as close as we once were, um, still friends today. I'm grateful for long-lasting friendships. Um, when I met him in the seventh grade, though, I thought he was a really awkward-looking dude. I was an awkward-looking guy at one point, believe it or not. Um, we had a lot of similarities. We wore a lot of flannel. We had awkward-looking hair. We both wore glasses at that time. Um, when we went to high school, matriculated in the high school, um, our group of friends, they started to date. And Scott and I were, were not. Um, we were the stereotypical awkward nerds, okay? And that didn't, that didn't go well for our, our ability to talk with, with, with girls that we, we liked. Um, we stammered a lot. We thought privately, our, our group of friends and I, we thought Scott would be the last one to get married out of all of us. And wouldn't you know it, Scott was the first one to get married out of all of us. He's a 17-year-old with scoliosis. Um, when we would stand in attention in JRTC together, I would adjust him a little bit as his shoulders slooped a little bit. And then I would watch them slowly shift back. Um, asthmatic. And again, he was, he was a brilliant dude. I was just flabbergasted. I didn't think he was mature enough to do it. And then he starts doing manly things, like getting a job while he's still in high school and buying an engagement ring for his then girlfriend, now his wife, and going to school and working a full-time job simultaneously. How do you do that? And buying a house and having eight kids. Yes, they're still married today. They're still happily married today. We live in a world nowadays, though, where um, there's, there's a bit of a crisis, and that is we, as when I say we, I mean we as Americans, we tend to perpetuate the, the, the childhood process a bit too long. And so it's okay for someone to live with their parents. I'm not against people living with their parents, we let them live with their parents, though, or parents let their kids live with them without contributing anything, without the expectation of a job, without helping them get along into maturity and demonstrating what, what healthy masculinity looks like. This is unfortunate. John is writing to his spiritual children, giving an expectation all the way up front when we belong to Jesus, when we are spiritual children of his father, he calls us to growing up. There's an expectation for those that are in the light to grow as they are in the light. And so there are two questions that I think John would have you and I wrestle with today. Namely, he's going to address three specific individuals, 
little children, young men, and fathers. I think John would have us first figure out which one of these are we, and then number two, what does our next best step into maturity look like? Who are you, and what does it look like for you to mature in light of 1 John chapter 2? If you're able to, would you stand out of reverence for God's word? As we finish reading the word together, I invite you to say along, um, thanks be to God as we receive his word. But this is what the word starts with, starting in verse 12. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven. And for his name's sake, I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. Verse 14, I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. This is God's word to us this morning. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. So if you're taking notes, if you're taking notes, there are a couple of things to pay attention to. And we're going to look at this specifically from the lens of the, the types of individual that he's addressing. Remember, there are three different people that he's calling out to. And perhaps... There are three different groups of people in here today. Maybe a fourth. Maybe a fourth in here as well that isn't yet a child of God. The first one that he addresses, though, is those that are kids. He says kids or children and then little children. In, in the New Testament, in the language that it was written in, there are two specific words. In our own day and age, though, that, that, that kind of language, it doesn't matter so much. He's addressing children, spiritual children overall. And he's moving in and out of this voice change you see from verse 12, where he says, I am writing to you, to verse 14, for example. He says, I write to you. I am writing to you and I write to you. Does this matter a whole lot? What he's wanting to do is bring emphasis. That's the most basic reason behind this. You see how it might be structured a little bit in your Bible if you're looking at it? It doesn't seem like it's part of a paragraph. This seems to be a standalone piece because it's probably, I would agree, that this is the height. This is the big point of 1 John or at least one of the big points. We've reached the crescendo. John has been writing, this is what life looks like. People are gonna leave the faith because they've been swindled and sold a bill of goods. That really isn't the faith. Jesus is the only one that saves. And those that are belonging to Christ will look like this. Not maybe, not possibly, this is what it looks like. This is the normal everyday experience for someone that belongs to Jesus. Starts with kids though. It starts with children. He starts with 
Little children, I am writing these things to you because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. And when you go down just a little bit further, I'm writing to you, little children, because you know the Father. And there's distinctions between different types of Christians. And he's drawing this to spiritual maturity. He's not saying that distinctions are based upon age. Rather, I would contend that some of us, some of you who have been in the faith for a really long time, John might still call little children. The picture that we should see is someone that's asking mom for milk, someone that's still wearing diapers, someone that still needs help being dressed, someone that doesn't know how to defend themselves from false doctrine and teaching, someone that is unable to reproduce spiritually. But he does say this, and this is the benchmark, like this is the foundation. This is the starting point for every person that follows Jesus and trusts Jesus. What is it? That your sins have been canceled and you have the privilege of being known by God. Every Christian gets to experience this and know this and enjoy this. And so there's a real sense in which we don't move past this ever. Everything that we experience and how we mature from here on out is based upon Jesus canceling our sin debt. Do you remember the first time you cried out to Jesus though and you asked him to forgive you? Some of us who've grown up in a Christian home do not remember the day that we put our trust in Jesus. It might sound something like, well, I've always trusted Jesus. Well, maybe not. Well, you might not remember the exact day that you put your trust in Jesus. You, you don't remember a time that you haven't. That's what I think that you would be trying to say. But in your heart of hearts, you want to follow him. You want to know him. I remember the day that I did. It was a Tuesday night in August in 2001, and I just remembered all of the nonsense that I did to my grandma and my sister and my mom, and I was broken about it. It didn't just hurt them, it it offended a really holy God. I asked Jesus to forgive me based upon what he'd done. The best way I knew how, as a 15-year-old boy, I asked Jesus to forgive me. And there hasn't been peace like that. Like, I, I, I experience peace now because of that. Because I know that Jesus has forgiven me. This is what enables us to, to know the Father. He's using relational language here, little children. Um, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Go back down to the end of verse 13. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. In the Bible, Old Testament and New, the, the Bible refers to sin in many different ways. It's criminal. It's seen as a It's treason against God. Here it's seen in relational terms. 
Sin is when trust dies between a particular party and someone else. Namely, when we choose to go a different way than God's way, we're saying to him, I do not believe that your way is best. I do not believe that life is found in you. And so sin doesn't merely injure, it kills trust, it kills the relationship. That's why he's using family-oriented language here throughout the text, sin kills. But what is it that we need? Les Miserables. You remember Jean Valjean? Jean Valjean was given um, a, a tremendous amount of generosity from the bishop, no? And what does he do with the bishop's generosity? He steals from him. The police capture him. And instead of the bishop throwing the book at him and bringing incredible justice, locking him away forever, what does the bishop do? He gives him silver candlesticks too. The act of forgiveness and mercy from the bishop, it ends up transforming Jean Valjean and he becomes repentant and an honorable and dignified man. Why do I bring up the question of, do you remember the first time that you trusted Jesus? Do you remember the first time that you asked him to forgive you for what you've done? The reason why is because we are always in a state of, even while we grow, learning how to repent and confess again. I'd submit to you, though, that this is hard to do without the gospel moving us. Tim, that sounds like an emotional response. Are you trying to curry an emotional response from me? Jonathan Edwards in his book, Religious Affection, says that anyone can cry for any old good reason. That's true. You can cry at a funeral. You can cry at a rock concert. You can cry because you found a rock in your pocket. There are all sorts of reasons why people can feel bad. Only the Spirit of God is able to bring contrition and remorse and actual healthy repentance in the life of someone. But I'd submit to you, a dude that has never ever mourned over the fact that he is a sinner and in desperate need of God's grace has not experienced it. This isn't just being sad for any number of things. It's being broken that we have not just offended a holy God, but we have broken trust with our God who is Father. All sorts of biblical language that we can use, that we can be undone. There's mourning and fasting that moves us to confession. None of this excludes a thorough, full-bodied response. Tears are not enough for forgiveness, but knowing the tenderness of a Savior moves us towards him. Humbly receiving what he offers us. Brokenness is not enough to be secure, but being forgiven by Christ moves us to worship. I dare say gratuitous worship. 
It's because we have been forgiven for his name's sake. As we've been forgiven for his name's sake, not for mine, not for ours. Jesus doesn't plead our case, he pleads his case. It's so that you and I can be rescued for his name's sake and enjoyed and known for his name's sake. Relished in and treasured forever for his name's sake. Not as a mere tool or prop up for his ego, but because he desires you. We're forgiven for his name's sake, which leans into the second point. Spiritual strength is necessary for longevity. Spiritual strength is different than emotional strength and physical prowess and psychological vigor. It's different. This is what's ultimately necessary for going the long haul and following Christ. This is how we grow. And this is the heart posture of someone that says, I haven't just been forgiven, but I've been forgiven for his name's sake. What do I mean by that? Look at verses 13, the middle of 13 and and the end of 14. I'm writing to you young men. If you're reading just young men and it's it's singling out ladies, like excluding y'all, that's not what he's doing here. This is written to the entire body. So young women in the faith too. Young women, because you have overcome the evil one. That's a very interesting phrase, isn't it? How many of you could possibly say I've overcome the evil one? It's about to get better. What's he say? Come down a little bit at the end of verse 14. I write to you young men and women. Young men and women, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you've overcome the evil one. Do you see he's writing about three different things here? Be strong, the word of God abides in you, the gospel message itself that frees you and liberates you. And then he says it twice. Why would he do that? Why would he say you have overcome the evil one twice? It's for emphasis, saying that it's entirely possible to do so. How many of you can say with John, I'm like one of these young men and women who he was writing to, I have overcome the evil one. They're displaying maturity in the faith. In fact, evidence of forgiveness of past sin includes being delivered from the power of sin. Another way to say that is that all living things grow. Do you know of any living thing that doesn't grow? I know of one, and they're like single-celled organisms that don't really do anything but just like spin around in like petri dishes. That, that's really it. My, my coffee orders are more complicated than those single-celled organisms, okay? You and I are more complicated than that. Spiritually complicated than that. Body, soul, mind, heart, 
There's a lot of pieces that go into what it means to be a whole functioning person. But John is saying, all living things grow. What does it look like for Emery, a six-year-old boy, to grow? He learns how to color in the lines, maybe a little bit. He learns how to wrestle. For John, he's saying, for young men and for young women in the faith who are maturing, he's saying that spiritual health in life looks like being strong, the word of God abiding in you and overcoming the evil one. Let's deal with that one first. How about that? Because when we read the New Testament, there's a lot of language about, about spiritual warfare, isn't there? Fair enough? We see Jesus in the, or in, um, in the desert. He's being tempted by the evil one. And what happens then? He's tempted in all sorts of ways. What is Jesus' response every single time the evil one comes to him? A specific scripture at that. He quotes Deuteronomy. It's quite helpful knowing that Jesus is the living embodiment of the word of God. This is, this is true. But he, the word of God abided in him. He had a practice of repeating and reciting and knowing the scriptures, yes? But there are plenty of other things in the Old Testament even when we talk about this creature, the evil one, or Satan, we see him as someone that's able to control weather. Look, y'all are very excited about 80 degree weather that's happening next week. Tornadoes could come from that, just like just warning you. He's able to inflict disease and pain upon people too. You can write it down, read Job 1. Read Job 2. He can govern legal proceedings. You, you read about that in the church of Smyrna in Revelation 2. In John 8, though, he reveals what his most nefarious and dangerous action is. He might be able to take the life of a person. The worst thing that he can do, though, is the sweet and subtle whisper of deception. And so spiritual warfare looks like when you and I do war with our flesh, it looks like being on the offensive and defensive. In defense, we learn healthy habits to cultivate a heart of thankfulness and praise. We would call them spiritual disciplines. But on the offensive, Paul commands us over and again to crucify our flesh. When we talk about spiritual warfare in terms of the world, because there's a lost group of people that are out there. There is spiritual warfare that happens when you engage the kingdom of darkness that isn't Satan but just normal everyday people that are in bondage to sin and death. Going on the defensive is giving a reason why you have the hope that's within you. But being on the offensive is praying on their behalf 
and giving them the gospel and telling them that the good king has come to liberate them from the kingdom of darkness and transfer them into his glorious light. We don't do much offense with the evil one. There really isn't need to go on the offense against him, though. Granted, the posture that we should have in light of 1 Peter, who this lion prowls around looking for someone to devour, we don't need to go hunting for him. Instead, Peter would tell us to resist. Resistance isn't passive, though. This isn't a declaration of war on Satan in terms of let's find him under every rock and look behind every corner. His influence isn't limitless, friends. But there are times when you are going to be tempted, supernaturally even, and you need to be aware of what John calls you to. And the word that he uses, maybe, maybe we don't like the language of overcome. Maybe that feels very weird and foreign to us. That's not a passive word though. Like Jesus, we can, do, we can do patient recitation of the word and dealing when, when Satan comes at us wanting our blood and our life. Or Ephesians 6, we demonstrate divine, excuse me, victory through Jesus' divine strength in the entirety of the armor of God being suit upon us. The shield of faith, the breastplate of righteousness, and namely the one and only offensive weapon that we need, God's word. But make no mistake, there is a sense of, it's clear from this passage, isn't it? That when he comes our way, the mature in Christ are able to overcome him. That's not a translation error. That's saying I can have victory over him when he comes my way because of what Jesus has done for me. It begs the question, if this is what it looks like to be mature in Christ though, have you overcome? Are you learning to have mastery? Let's rephrase that. Is the word gradually having mastery over you? Is the word gradually teaching you what it looks like to follow Jesus, even through the hard stuff? This is why the word abiding in us is such a demonstration of maturity. The word doesn't just lead us to forgiveness. It also leads us to life and victory. What's a craftsman without his bench? What's a mechanic without tools to be able to fix stuff? 
What is a Christian that has no understanding or knowledge of God's word? The very best, they're seriously hampered and slowed down. And so, brother and sister, you might say, I'm just not good at handling the word. And I would say, I think you've demonstrated a lack of maturity here then. I think it's showing that you're still in this, this, this childlike stage where a love for, not just an appreciation, but a love for the scriptures just hasn't taken root in your heart yet. I'm not saying I want you to be like your favorite preacher. I'm not saying that I want you to be like me. I'm not saying I want you to be like a sp- your spiritual father. I'm saying that maturity comes through the word. Strength comes from knowing the word. Being able to overcome the evil one comes from knowing the word. I desperately want you to be mastered by the word. Are you? Does it know you like the back of your hand? Does it inspect every thought of your heart and mind? Does it know what you meditate upon at night? Do you hear the Spirit through the Word calling you to further obedience and further joy in knowing Jesus? There is, there is a payoff. There is a payoff. He says, I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. He says the same thing twice. It's estimated John wrote his his, this letter, pretty late on in the first century, Jesus' Jesus's earthly ministry ends somewhere around 33, 36 AD. There were people that knew Jesus and knew the gospel of Jesus for about 60 years or so, give or take a few years in this span of time. And they knew him from the beginning. And they've seen a lot of their friends come and go. They've seen people in the church persecuted, struck down, but not destroyed. They knew him who promises eternal life from the very beginning. He's writing to fathers who have much more experience and knowledge than say these little kids and these young men and young women about ancient things and spiritual things. He's calling the fathers. It's implied in the language. It's why he uses language like fathers who are mature enough to be training others in Christian living. And so a couple of things to note. I want to reemphasize this again. 
that age does not necessarily demonstrate maturity in the Christian life. Our spiritual knowledge can outpace our spiritual maturity. I've seen it. I've lived it. I've seen it all places at seminary. Dudes getting MDivs and PhDs while their families are falling apart. It's crazy. Likewise, reading all the books in the world, it doesn't replace spiritual decorum or demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit. Knowing how the Holy Spirit works in conjunction with the Father and the Son and calling us and saving us does not replace gentleness and patience in how we deal with one another. The most mature of us will look like the most patient of us. The most mature of us are going to embody love and joy. Knowing your sin is forgiven and relishing in him and pushing back against Satan's schemes, being strong and loving the word will result in us in sweet, deep intimacy with the Father. What John is advocating for here, what he's pushing is intimacy, is consistency over time. John wants this fruit. John wants this life to be in, especially those of us who are supposed to be older in the faith. And the particular end is of multiplying yourself. It's not accidental. Again, he uses this language. Why does he say father over and again? Fathers multiply and they give life. They give life. They defend the cause. They're able to train up other young men and women in how to follow Jesus. And so question, how many spiritual mothers and fathers are here at HBC? Write down a number. I think there's only one way that we're able to evaluate that in a helpful way. How many mothers and fathers are there? As many as are multiplying themselves and bearing through, through discipleship. the honor and joy of being able to come alongside young men and women. Being called a dad isn't necessarily a place of privilege and honor. There's joy at the end of the responsibility though. So the Spirit of God is calling you and me to respond. How does he want you to respond? 
I think you need to be able to answer two questions. Who are you today? You a child, spiritually speaking. You know that your sin is forgiven and you know that you are loved by God. What would your next step look like? It might look like finding someone that's a spiritual mom or a spiritual dad and running up to them and ask them, feed me, teach me, show me how to follow Jesus faithfully. It might look like getting into the word all the more in regular healthy rhythms. But for little, little kids, he's calling us to action. For those of you that are a bit older in the faith, what is he pushing you to? Even if you are a little bit older in the faith, we're still called to be discipled and trained. This is why fathers and mothers are so important to the body of Christ. Young men and young women, gain a little more strength, get a little more time, be a little more consistent, and maybe you too can start bringing people along on your discipleship journey as you follow Jesus. And finally, mothers and fathers who have not all the time in the world, I'd plead with you. I beg you. There are young men and women and people young in the faith that need you. If you've been in the faith for a long time and you don't know who to connect with, I actually have a list of people to direct you to. You can talk to Drew right after service. He doesn't know that I was doing this. Surprise, Drew. He knows of young men and women that need you. He's calling us to be strong when we've been weak. When we have all sorts of words abiding in us over Christ's word, he calls us to empty our life of this Nonsense and fill it with God's truth. He calls us to overcome the evil one. He calls us to sweet intimacy with him. He calls us to giving our life. How will you, how will you respond? We do altar calls for people that don't follow Jesus. Why don't we do altar calls for Christians? I don't think it necessarily matters where you respond today. Without a shadow of a doubt, God calls you to respond and act. Some of you that are already spiritual fathers and mothers, I'd ask you to stay in your seat and pray for other brothers and sisters to get involved and find their place in the body. But for others, 
Maybe God is moving you to repentance and not growing as he has called us to grow. Maybe I haven't prioritized his word. Maybe I just haven't prioritized him. We're going to sing a song of response. There's nothing magical about coming up front and praying. But maybe some of you need to. If you want someone to pray with, I'm going to be right up here too. I'd ask you, how does God want us to respond in light of of what we heard today? Let's pray. Father, help us today. We hear your word. We want to respond helpfully to your word, but we need your help. Inspect us. Show us the, the awkward, dark parts of our heart. Father, I remember being a babe in Jesus and there's sweet joy that comes from knowing that your sin is forgiven. But you don't call us to stay there. It's a work of the Spirit, that's true. You call us to obedience, though, and as we obey, you give life and strength. And so I pray for brothers and sisters in here that might have known you for a really long time, but have not yet grown spiritually. I pray that you would call them out to be strong, to overcome the evil one, and that the word may abide in them richly. For brothers and sisters here who are strong, I pray that you would keep them faithful until the very end. I pray that they would have fruitful lives that come out of healthy habits and meeting and depending upon you so that they can be spiritual mothers and fathers. Jesus, I pray for mothers and fathers that are in here today. I pray that you give them peace because the task to disciple can be overwhelming. Father, I pray that you give them clarity and vision. Show them them who to go to. I pray that you bring them by the droves so that little kids in the faith and young men and women in the faith can grow healthily. Father, help us respond as we need to. We pray in Christ's name, amen.